Coats, the podcast that undresses scientists. I'm Elodie Chabrol and I can't wait to take you with me to meet the humans behind the research. We will of course talk a little bit about science, but we will mostly talk about them. Hello and welcome to this very first episode of Under the Lab Coat. This podcast is the little English brother of Sous la Blouse, that is in French. And I hope you will enjoy listening to scientists' stories about their life. Now, let's welcome my amazing guest, Selina Ray, a neuroscientist. Hi, Selina. Hi, Elodie. Thank you for the invitation to join you today. I'm really happy to have you. And actually, we, we worked in the same building. And I'm really happy that you're going to tell your stories today at this podcast. And I'm super happy you're starting the podcast. So thank you. No pressure. No pressure <laughs> at all. <laughs> so we're going to start. This is usually the, um, the tradition is that we're starting with the lab coat on. Okay. So we're in your lab and I see you don't wear a lab coat. So it's the virtual lab coat on for you to tell me what your research is about. Yeah. So as you said, I'm a neuroscientist, which means I'm interested in how the brain works or in my case, how the brain doesn't work sometimes. Okay. Um, so specifically what... I What I've worked on for maybe the past 15 years and what my lab now works on is Alzheimer's disease, mm -hmm. which is the most common cause of dementia. And it's a condition that really is a huge health challenge for society because at the moment, um, at least in the UK, there are 850,000 people who are living with dementia, okay. but we don't have any disease modifying treatments. So what I mean by that is we have nothing that will either delay the onset or slow down the progression of Alzheimer's disease so this is a huge challenge for us it's okay. a disease which is very common um, it's a disease which affects not only the person living with the disease it affects family. their whole family and it's a disease that at the moment we can do very little about and the consequence of that is the individuals who are living with Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia quite often need long-term care mm -hmm. um, It's obviously very hard for their family and their loved ones. And it also has a huge cost to the economy. Yeah. So there's this huge unmet need. And the question, therefore, is what can we do about that? Okay. Um, so in my lab, we are very much um, laboratory based scientists we're quite far away from the clinic. Mm -hmm. But we are really interested in trying to understand what are the very first things that go wrong in the brain of somebody with Alzheimer's okay. disease? And our motivation for that is if we want to treat these diseases effectively, we want to intervene as early as, as yeah. we possibly can. So if we can understand the very th first things that are going wrong in neurons, which are the cells of the brain affected in Alzheimer's disease, we can then design new treatments and new drugs to help the cells cope with those things that are going wrong or to stop them from happening altogether. Um, and what we do to try and do that is we use stem cell models. Mm -hmm. And so most people have heard of stem cells. The reason that they are so important to us is the human brain is inaccessible to us during oh. life. So we can't just go around taking samples of people's <laughs> brains yep. as much as I'd like to. Um, <laughs> people are generally not that keen. 
And so what we do instead is we use stem cells, which are kind of like a blank slate, and we can turn those stem cells into neurons. And then we can study those neurons in the lab from people with Alzheimer's disease, people without Alzheimer's disease, and look for the differences between the two. And that's where we get the clues into what might be going wrong in the brain of someone with Alzheimer's. And you also work with organoids, don't you? So it's like mini brains. Yeah, so (laughs) we started, I mean, I, I think if I can try and paint a picture for listeners who might not know very much about how we grow cells in the lab most of our work is done in two dimensions so Mm -hmm. we grow the cells in plastic petri dishes and they grow in a single layer stuck down to the plastic Um, and obviously that's not very representative of what our brain is like Um, and so we're trying to move towards making more realistic models and the first step in that process is to have something in three dimensions and so we grow organoids as you said we sometimes call them mini brains and they are 3d balls of cells that are probably about the size of a lentil Mm -hmm. And because they are growing in 3D and the cells are attached to each other rather than a plastic, they are a little bit more representative of the environment that our brain has. So yeah, really exciting technology, really cool to be working with it. Thank you for explaining your research in such easy way to understand and exciting way as well. Um, So now my burning question is, do you wear a lab coat in the lab? So sadly for me, I don't get chance to wear a lab coat very much these days. And that is in part a reflection of the fact that my position's changed over yeah. year, over kind of the past decade. So when I first started out working in Alzheimer's, I was a, first a PhD student and then a postdoc. And they're probably 80% of my time was in the lab. So mm-hmm. I was in a lab coat the whole time, particularly in cell culture. So we um, have two different lab coats. We have one that we use in what I will call the general lab or the routine lab where no. we run assays and, and kind of regular experiments and downstream analysis of the cells. But when we're working with the cells themselves, we have a different lab coat and that's because human cells, just like us, are susceptible to infection. So it's really critical that we keep everything sterile. And so we'd have a white lab coat in the lab and a blue lab coat in cell culture that really signifies that, um, you know, you put your blue lab coat on and it, it really gets you into the zone of having this step change in behavior of being super clean and super careful Um, sadly now I'm a professor and I I have my own group which is a huge privilege but sadly it means I don't get to wear a lab coat very often because I spend more time in my office than in the lab these days (laughs) Um, but I still you know from time to time I still get to put one on yeah especially when it's you know nice cells to go and check it's always really good you know to see them on the microscope exactly exactly happening I think all my group look horrified when I step in and put (laughs) the lab coat on it's like Oh, she's here everyone hide (laughs) she's in the lab everyone just hide from her okay so thank you now um the tradition so people don't know this podcast very well now because that's the first episode but in french usually what i do is that we had the lab coat on at least the virtual one Mm because you know not the real one to talk about science and we're gonna remove it to talk about you are you Excellent. ready? <laughs> Let's go for it. Let's go for it. So is research something that you wanted to do from an early age or is it something you discovered later? What did you want to do when you were a kid? 
it's definitely something that I discovered later. So I'm I'm from a town in the north of England called Barnsley, which is, I guess for anyone who doesn't know it, it's quite a underprivileged area. So I didn't okay. grow up in a family where it's a town with a lot... It, was a town with a lot of unemployment not as many opportunities and definitely I grew up not very exposed to a lot of Mm -hmm. career options and so I got into science really because it was one of the subjects at school that I enjoyed and found that I was quite good at and I think those two things are always linked you tend to enjoy things Mm -hmm. that you're quite good Mm -hmm. at right um and you know at home I used to watch my dad fixing things around the house and I think there's a a little bit of kind of enjoying how things are put together and mm-hmm. seeing how things work and when things are broken trying to fix them which is basically what I'm doing now yeah. right just on a very very complicated scale um, and so I think that kind of got me generally interested in science as a whole but I would say that you know at least when I was in junior school and secondary school like high school um, I didn't really know what you could do in terms of career in science the only things that I was really aware of were to train in medicine and be a doctor or be a vet right they're the kind of two (laughs) options and I knew that I wanted to do something that was medically orientated but I didn't want to be a doctor Um, I kind of I I was gonna say I don't like interacting with people that's not true (laughs) Um, but I kind of saw myself more as a um behind Behind the the scenes scenes. (laughs) yeah that's a good way of putting it kind of behind the scenes and contributing to how to drive a field forward hopefully Mm -hmm. rather than in that kind of patient interaction and I think when things changed for me really was that period between 16 to 18 when we do a levels Mm -hmm. and and I did chemistry biology and physics we had a chemistry teacher who was phenomenal and she'd actually done a PhD and we you know I remember us in class being like but you're a chemistry teacher so why are you called doctor Doctor. yeah (laughs) right and then that's where I kind of first was first exposed to this idea of doing a extended period of research what doing a PhD meant Mm -hmm. um and the fact that you doctor didn't just mean medical doctor right um and together with the physics and biology teachers they also really made an effort to see that we were exposed to to what science was like in real life and I think this is something I talk to students about a lot when I'm doing teaching is the fact that learning science is very different to doing science right and just because you enjoy one it doesn't mean you you would enjoy the other and so they took us on lots of of kind of trips to see research labs we took a day trip to go to Sellafield the nuclear power plant okay um to see you know what physics is yeah. in real life it was the most ridiculous thing because it took six hours to get there <laughs> we did like a one hour two and then six hours back <laughs> it was like oh such a ridiculous trip but amazing that they made the effort to really you it, know they thought you know we've got these group of kids who probably have no idea what science in real yeah. life looks like so the fact that they made an effort to see us exposed to that I th- I'm, is something I'll really be grateful for they are amazing because in Paris for example we didn't have that science was just yeah. where you were taught in schools you know so you you wouldn't meet any scientists um they our teachers they were not really pushing us to meet scientists so for us science was just that you know and a career in science wasn't something we knew was there 
Yeah, 100%. And actually, quite recently, I've been speaking to one of the local school primary schools that's in the vicinity of the lab. And they have an annual day where they go and have a tour of the Crick Institute and well, stuff. And I okay. think, God, I would have loved yeah. that as a kid. Yeah. Um, but, you know, th- there aren't any big research institutes in Barnsley, is the yeah. matter of the fact. Yeah. So you need someone who, you know, has the means and the motivation and the capability to kind of arrange for those interactions to happen. Um, and yeah, so at the end of A-levels, I was really thinking, well, what am, you know, what am I going to do at university? And I think at the time, a lot of people feel that, you know, that's the last decision you will make and whatever you do yeah. at the university, that's the path you're on yeah. for life, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Um, which is really not the case. But I basically loved biology, loved chemistry, didn't want to drop either of them. And so I went and did biochemistry at university. <laughs> um, and it was really there where, um, you know, again, I sort of thought maybe I'll go into research afterwards, who knows? But it was there where I got the chance to really work in a lab and do yes. independent research projects. Yes. And that was, again, another real key moment because I, I think coming back to this idea of doing science is very different to learning science. Yeah. I actually really enjoyed doing it. I learned, I enjoyed running experiments. I enjoyed troubleshooting when things went wrong. Mm. And I enjoyed having kind of a big question that we were striving towards yeah. answering. Um, but it's a bit like, you know, you were talking about your dad fixing stuff in the house. But I feel like when we're doing experiments, it's a bit that we're doing as well. When we're troubleshooting, you know, so it didn't work why and then you're basically like going through all the reasons he could have gone wrong and trying to fix everything exactly it's exactly the same so I think kind of observing that process and watching my dad is almost the first time of developing that skill set and seeing how somebody thinks through a problem and troubleshoots things and you know works out what is the logical order that we will try all these different things to do um so yeah it kind of it's exactly the same really and it's a skill that you know you take out of the lab and you apply to a lot of situations in real life as well yes um to not be overwhelmed by a problem and to actually think right let's break it down and and let's think about what we can address and in what order and so yeah it's something that's really really useful um but yeah so at university i guess i i fell into alzheimer's disease yeah i was about to ask because biochemistry how did you end up doing alzheimer's it just like by chance or yeah pretty much i mean <laughs> i think like a lot of people i went into university and when i started thinking about research so you know i'm going to do cancer research okay. um kind of not really thinking about anything more broad than that but then we had a series of lectures around protein misfolding so again for anyone listening who's not a scientist (laughs) all of our cells are made up of different proteins that are really crucial for how those cells work properly but what happens sometimes in diseases those proteins take on a different shape and it stops them yeah, they are 3D shaped. Yeah, yes. exactly, exactly. And so in disease, they'll take on a slightly different shape and it means that they no longer work. Um, but in the case of Alzheimer's disease and other diseases such as Parkinson's, those proteins then build up in the cell and they you know, lead to the damage that eventually results in the diseases. And that concept just fascinated me that you can change the shape of a protein ever so slightly and all of a sudden not only does it no longer work but the cell has no idea what to do with it yeah just box it somewhere exactly (laughs) and so I I really kind of was excited by the science which is is why I got into this area not realizing at the time 
what a huge problem it was for society yeah. and what an important area it was that kind of came a little bit later um but i was lucky enough to find a phd project in london at king's college london after i finished my undergraduate um went to to kind of work there and that coincided with when there was a real push for an increase in in kind of funding into alzheimer's mm. and also an increase in public awareness of of what alzheimer's disease is so moving away from this misconception that it's just people getting a bit old and forgetful yeah. which is absolutely not true um and trying to really shift people into the thinking that alzheimer's is a disease that affects the brain and if it's a disease we can approach it the same way that we have approached cancer and we've approached other diseases we understand why the disease happens and mm -hmm. then we develop drugs to stop it and you know it was hard to not get carried along with this yeah. this like increase in momentum and also when you meet the people who live with the condition or who have cared for yeah. loved ones with the condition you just think oh why is no one doing anything about yeah. this you know yeah. why isn't there why aren't people shouting about this from the rooftops mm -hmm. so you know I really feel that without wanting to sound too cheesy I feel like <laughs> I've grown as a scientist as the field has grown up yes. as well um, and so that's been a really nice thing to be a, be a part of. So you've always been a scientist on Alzheimer's? Yeah I have actually I've never worked on any other diseases I mean I guess because we use stem cells there's maybe a sprinkling of developmental biology yeah. in there and I was really fortunate to spend two years working up in Edinburgh mm -hmm. at the Centre for Regenerative Medicine there to learn um, how to work with stem cells and that's the center where Sir Ian Wilmot was based who um, cloned Dolly the sheep Ooh. so you know actually <laughs> you know being part of that institute was yeah. such a great experience as well but yeah an Alzheimer's scientist with a little sprinkling of development and yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah that was a very long long answer but I guess that's, no, that's kind perfect. of my journey this is perfect <laughs> this is exactly what we want to know you know it's always interesting to see um, how, how you decide and what you know shift also your your research and why sometimes you're working on one subject and not one other um another you know it's like oh really interesting it's just the folding of the protein that got you into alzheimer yeah <laughs> and it's you know it's also in a way really lucky that i've had continuous funding to be able to yeah. stay in the same disease area because i think a lot of people sadly will switch fields even if they don't want to because you have to go where you, your salary is going to be paid <laughs> from right and so I've been really lucky that I've been able to stay continuously within this field and we need more people to come and work on Alzheimer's <laughs> um, and we need people from diverse backgrounds because they will bring you know diverse ideas and ways yeah. of approaching the problem um, and the more people we have working in this field in my opinion the quicker we will get to the treatments yeah. we need. And actually, you're very, very active in the network of uh, Alzheimer's Research UK, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, as you can probably tell, I quite like talking. So <laughs> this is amazing. You know, for, for, me, for me, doing things like public engagement is really important. A lot of our funding comes from charity. It mm -hmm. comes from Alzheimer's Research UK. And if somebody is putting in hours of training to run a marathon or yeah. you know they're giving up their day to do a bake sale or you know whatever amazing event that people are doing I think that they deserve to hear in return what is happening to that yeah. money 
Yeah, they do that to raise money because not everyone is familiar with uh, with that, and that's that's amazing actually. Um, so yeah, baking stuff, running marathon, you raise money for charity. Exactly, exactly. And it's true that it's amazing to hear what scientists are, you know, are doing with that money. Yeah, exactly. And I think you know it's really important as well because science is a long process. Yeah. So experiments take place over a number of years mm. and you know what I would class as a breakthrough in the lab can then take 10 or 20 years mm. to translate into a breakthrough in clinic yeah. and I think it's really important that we take time to explain that so that we keep people on side with our mission mm. as well because I think it's understandable to ask when will the treatments will when yeah. will the treatments yeah. be ready why aren't they coming quicker and yeah. so actually what I found is that if you take the time to explain what the process is like then you know people will have an understanding of that yeah. and they'll be on board with it yeah. um so yeah it's really nice and I've made some really good friends through kind of those networks yeah. and those events so and it feels good also when you explain your research you know and you feel even more like what you're doing is helpful when you talk about yeah. like people that it could benefit to or even just in general to the public about Absolutely. your research and so many people are like oh you know it's neuroscientist you know I'm not clever enough I won't understand it and then you know I always say to them scientists use a lot of fancy words to describe mm. things that are actually quite simple mm -hmm. um let's just see and then you explain and it's a really nice feeling when you see that kind of click the sparkling yeah guys. when yeah. somebody's like oh I get that <laughs> I understand it so you know it's it's nice and I think it works in both ways because as you've already said we'll, sometimes we'll be doing stuff in the lab and you go through periods of time where things aren't working or mm -hmm. things are real struggles but then actually when you take take a step back and have that kind of more big picture conversation with yeah. someone it gives you a little bit of motivation to think okay you know it's not you know we're one piece of a very much bigger jigsaw and yeah. the stuff that we're doing does really really matter so it does give you that kind of motivation to to keep plowing on yeah you know i'm i'm a convinced science communication person for yes. sure <laughs> but what was the first thing you did um in public engagement or science communication oh gosh we did we host um oh no actually that's not the first one so when i was at king's the then head of department had this crazy but brilliant idea that we, we were going to have an institute open day and so we did a Saturday where I think 200 members of the public could sign wow. up okay. and they split um, these 200 people into groups of 15 mm -hmm. and we had something like 20 different research stations around the building and each group went around chaperoned and saw four research stations in the morning and four research well, stations yeah. in the evening in the afternoon sorry and it was just such a phenomenal undertaking in terms of logistics and organization yeah. I'm very glad that I wasn't in charge of it <laughs> but I did have a research station where we were explaining a particular technique called a western blot yep. um, which is a thing that we use to analyze proteins not everyone I'm guessing you don't love a western blot the reaction you just no gave I me. love them it's just, I've been traumatized by them yeah. in the lab but, um, yeah. but again just really in a very simple way taking through taking people through what that particular technique is why we use it and what we get to see out the other side um so that was brilliant and then since joining ucl we do um a lot of similar things such as open afternoons where people come mm -hmm. in 
can come and hear research talks. Mm. I've done similar things at Pint of Science, which is an event Love. that everyone can come to. You should check out. It's a cool event, I've heard. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then one of my, not the first, but one of my favorite things we did. Oh, yeah, that's is the question I was about to ask yeah, you. So Perfect. The thing that, um, I absolutely loved was we did a takeover at the Science Museum in London. So they have a monthly event called Science Museum Lates, which is between six and nine um, on the last Wednesday of the month. Every event has a theme. And I was lucky enough to meet the director of the Science Museum at a UCL event. And I said, well, you've never had dementia as a theme. And, you know, we had this conversation where we said, oh, you know, but isn't it going to bring everyone down? It's meant to be a fun evening. And, you know, do you really think it would fit well? And I said, well, let us try and convince you. Um, And we eventually did a takeover. We ran this event that covered all aspects of the brain, how we do testing, how, you know, very, actually very uplifting. Because as I said to him, as I would say to anyone, I think through research, the theme is really hope and mm-hmm. these conditions are hard, but research is giving us hope that it will be different in the future. Yeah, yeah. And there was something like 5,000 people came through wow. the doors. Um, not the you know typical demographic that people might assume we would have. It was yeah. all kind of people in 20s, 30s. Yeah. Um, you know, an audience who might not think learning about dementia is relevant to them at that time yeah. in, of their life, mm-hmm. um, but actually went away knowing a little bit more or yeah. at least playing some silly games if nothing this is else nice. <laughs> yeah that's the thing sometimes that's complicated when you talk about disease is that it feels like people are feeling it's going to be sad yeah but you don't have to do sad kind of public engagement you can you know turn it into explaining the science and not necessarily being like this is awful yes it's a bad disease but this is hope this is what we're doing so you know I like the way that you say, you know, it's hope. So it's quite like cheerful way of saying we're doing stuff, you know, lots of people are working on it. So it is a pretty cool thing to to be doing. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, that is kind of the, the key message that I'd like to give to anyone through public engagement is that we do the work that we do so the future might look different yeah. um, and for the better. Oh, love so. it. Yeah, that's a good soundbite, wasn't yeah, it? It was, <laughs> <laughs> it was an amazing one. <laughs> so, um, so you do a lot of public engagement. Actually, how long per week do you spend doing public engagement or roughly? Do you have an idea? It's a good question, actually. It varies. I think you tend to find that you'll have a kind of series of events clustered together and then nothing for a while. Um, If I was to average it out, I would maybe say one to two hours per week. It tends to be mostly outside of my car working hours because Mm -hmm. a lot of these events are happening in the evening or at the weekends, um, you know, which is nice. It's nice to kind of use a different bit of your brain I think mm-hmm. to go to these but yeah probably a couple of hours a week so it's it's not an insignificant part of no, my role it is, so. it is still but it's also is it in the missions of uh, scientists like is it something you you have to do normally in grants like the fundings now they're asking for that I think more and more yeah okay. which I think is a good thing and again yeah. it comes you know it comes back to this idea of feeding back to the people yeah. who've contributed to fund your research which i think is critical um most f- applications that i would now put in for research funding include a little bit mm-hmm. on outside outreach and dissemination <laughs> um, which is good no it's brilliant i think yeah. it's really really good and it's recognized in my job description as well so okay. if i apply for promotion those activities um 
I, I kind of recognised and rewarded as well. And you feel like it's making you a better scientist as well? Absolutely. I think, you know, never underestimate where your next idea is yes. going to come from. And, you know, I always have had amazing questions when I've given talks. And again, you know, I think people often qualify them saying, oh, I'm not a scientist and this might be a stupid question. Yeah, no. They're always the ones <laughs> that I can't answer, right? That I'm yeah. just like, yeah, you've really, if I could answer that question, I'd have a Nobel Prize, really. <laughs> um, so I think it's, you know, it's really good to get feedback from as wide a pool of people as, as yeah. possible and it all shapes the research that we do and it also shapes how we disseminate that research because if somebody asks a question and it might highlight that perhaps I've not communicated something as mm. clearly and I need to yes, think a little bit more about that so it all you know it all helps all feedback is good but you know that this podcast actually a part of why it's been created it's because a lot of time during Pint of Science I saw lots of people asking questions to scientists about their studies how did they end up working in that field mm -hmm. a lot over the years it's been 10 years Pint of Science is there 10 years I'm doing it and 10 years I'm hearing those questions and I'm like there is something you know people want to know about scientists not just the science but also what you do and and it's that kind of questions are that were always really cool because it's you know it's a good moment to you have a scientist in front of you so why not ask like but why Alzheimer yeah. why why your PhD how did you end up doing that you know it's always really interesting exactly and there's such a wide range of reasons why people get yes. into certain yes. disciplines as well and I think I think people are always quite surprised when I give my story because it's not through personal experience. Yes. Yeah. Um, whereas obviously from a lot of my colleagues, I'm motivated because they've had somebody in their family mm -hmm. and and that's kind of propelled them to, to kind of work in this area. So yeah, there are a lot of reasons why people take specific mm -hmm. paths and a lot of different paths by which people end up in yep. these roles as well. So yes. it's, it's good. And I think, you know, it was a point I mentioned If, like 10 minutes ago saying when I chose my university course yeah. I felt like this is it you know I won't be yeah. do anything different and it's just not the case at all right <laughs> there are people my colleagues who have been and worked in health policy yeah. or in industry settings or you know even as you know things like accountants and then retrained I think there are so many ways that people yeah. find their way into and out of science but so. that's the thing you don't know when you're in high school you feel like yeah. the decision you're taking is the final decision but I actually no exactly. it shapes you know your career is shaping itself um throughout the years um thank you for sharing all those stories i i'm i'm, I'm going towards something more even more personal okay <laughs> what do you do outside of the lab and the public engagement yeah so i so think hobbies and stuff yeah i mean i guess the main thing at the minute is running i yeah. it's you know it's good for i'm not a fast runner But I do enjoy it and I particularly have enjoyed getting into longer distance running mm -hmm. because I think I'm quite slow but I'm very stubborn so if I <laughs> set out on a distance I'm going to finish it no matter how long it takes me um, and I think you know it's obviously got great physical benefits but for mental I always no. call it there's a phrase about like moving meditation which mm -hmm. I quite like that it's really good for headspace and clarity and so you know we do a few runs run a few times a week there's a initiative called park run yep. which i'm a bit obsessed with um, <laughs> so what, do, what is it about so it's a free 5k run that happens on saturday mornings at 9 a.m which is the bit that 
puts a lot of people <laughs> off. Yeah. Um, but they happen all around the UK. I mean, there are hundreds in the UK. And it's such a inclusive event that I really like. You know, there are the people there who come out and smash a 5K out in 14 minutes or something. <laughs> um, I'm definitely not one of those. And there are people who will walk the whole thing. And okay. that is fine. And anywhere in between is fine. And it's all about just getting out and being active mm-hmm. and having something that's not intimidating and anyone can turn yeah. up to um so I do those most Saturdays actually and then at the minute we're training together with a colleague and a friend of mine we're in marathon training with so Helen right with Helen so, so Helen. she did she did the Sula blues yes in French yes <laughs> so if you speak French <laughs> you can listen to Helen yeah so she um she and I were planning to run a marathon together but the dates didn't work out with some work travel yes So she is running the London Marathon on October the 2nd and I'm running the Chicago Marathon on October the 9th. (laughs) So I have to go out there for work anyway. Um, So that's really exciting and that will be basically taking up my whole summer. Yeah. Um, But yeah, other than running, I mean... But for the run, for the run, uh, is it your first marathon? It's my fifth marathon. Ooh, so you Um, know how to train and everything. Yeah, I mean, I would not say I've always been as diligent with the training as I should have been (laughs) um but I feel this year you know I was 40 this year and I think it kind of feels like a milestone year of like let's do something big and let's do it properly as well so at the minute um I feel really motivated to train really in a very disciplined way but that's also because it's very early on in the training plan and all of the runs are in single figures right once you get 10 miles and above that motivation (laughs) might wane a little bit but we'll see what happens we'll see what happens um but you know it's nice running around london through the summer it's it's quite nice Uh, especially if you have a friend to train with you know it's quite cool exactly it's a a nice target you have together exactly Um, it makes it more fun but it also means we can hold each other accountable which i think helps (laughs) a lot um and yeah i guess apart from running it's you know there's so much stuff going on in london you can never get bored my particular favorite thing to do here is i really like going to live music and and gigs and you know i'm so happy that those have restarted again post pandemic um so we were at a music festival a couple of weeks ago um, in barcelona right in barcelona yeah we went to primavera sound which was lovely and guaranteed weather which you don't get at uk festivals (laughs) um but there's another one coming up in london at the end of august called all points east which i'm quite excited about um and yeah it's kind of nice i think it's you know we're very fortunate when you're in a big city that when bands tour they nearly always pass through Mm -hmm. um so that's probably my other favorite thing What's to do. Your favorite kind of music? Um, so I like sort of indie guitar-y music okay. and a little bit of dance as well. So I'm going to see LCD Sound System Ooh. at the weekend, which would be very <laughs> yep. fun. Um, but actually, quite open-minded. I also quite like when friends say, "Let's go and see yeah. this show," yeah. and you know, and it's something that I maybe wouldn't have discovered myself. But then you get to find out something new. So I'd say, even though I've got my favourites, I'm open-minded to most yeah. most things. So nice. Yeah. Okay, so good gigs. Um, planned yeah and then other than that just chilling with the cat exactly thank you <laughs> I know well. you've been desperate to get to the cat conversation so <laughs> 
So let's talk about the cat. Billy. Billy, my cat. He's an absolute angel. He's the best cat ever. Um, no, he was a lockdown baby. Um, I'm afraid I fell into the cliche of getting a kitten in lockdown. Um, something that had been on the cards for a while, I would okay, say, yeah. but lockdown accelerated it slightly. Mm. Um, he's a British short hair and he is a cinnamon British short hair. So he's all brown, which is quite unusual for a yeah. cat. Um, and he looks a bit like a teddy bear to me. Yeah, it definitely looks like a teddy bear. And he has his own Instagram account. He does. The outstanding Bill. You can <laughs> find him and follow him. I love um, <laughs> I need to monetize that somehow, don't I? I yeah. need sponsorship if anybody's listening yeah, and exactly. wants to uh, <laughs> send my cat free stuff. Just contact me. Um, but no, he's a lot of fun. He's like the cutest but grumpiest looking cat I've ever seen. And it's, you know, it's... I, I feel like houses feel empty when they don't have pets yeah. in them. So it's it's nice to have him around. And you're taking him for walks. Well, <laughs> you managed. That's the thing. I'm, I'm, I'm feel, you know, I've tried with my cat. It's not happening. I think you've set me up here to make me sound like a crazy cat no. woman at the end of the recording. So he, because, it's because I live in an apartment block and I don't have direct access yes. into the garden. And British short hairs are meant to be quite happy as indoor cats okay it's part of the reason that i selected that breed because they don't actually mind if they're indoor cats but you know i'm a, I'm a scientist i wanted him to have an enriched environment <laughs> and so i i thought well how i don't have direct access to the garden but how can i kind of get him out and yeah. so i got one of these little harnesses that you can put on the cat and you can you can't really walk them they walk you i yeah. sort of just follow <laughs> them around um but it's nice he likes you know because he's had it since he was a kitten he's not resistant to That's it nice, yeah. um and yeah he likes going out and and sniffing all the plants and he's got his little cat friend alfie who lives a few doors down so i think he has a happy life yeah he looks well people can check on instagram he definitely has a happy life and he's <laughs> very very cute we are approaching the end of this podcast thank you very much thank you thank you for having me it was amazing do you have anything you want to finish this episode with um any last message or something you haven't said you want to come to say or something you want to come back to Gosh, I always feel the pressure for these bits. <laughs> I think, you know, I've been asked this in a few interviews and articles now of kind of advice that you would give people. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of career orientated, but I think is actually quite applicable more broadly to any situation in life. And it's something that I am trying to get better at because I've never been very good at it, which is enjoying the moment. And I think in a lot of... Um, and I know that sounds quite sort of flippant and trivial, but what I mean is in a lot of situations, particularly for me in work, I think you're always looking to the next thing or mm -hmm. you, you know, you kind of reach a milestone and then all of a sudden it's like, well, what are your next goals? Yeah. And so I think I'm trying to be less rushing from one step to another and actually just take time to kind of enjoy an achievement or enjoy mm -hmm. where I am right now yeah. um and I think you can do both of those things together but trying to focus a bit more on the enjoyment part rather than what's coming next yeah. where am I going next um so yeah I would leave that out there for everyone perhaps as something that that you can do and just try and take the pressure off yourself a little bit 
I think that's a great advice to end the podcast with. Uh, thank you very much, Selina. Thank it you for having amazing. me. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and I will put all the links uh, the, of the stuff that we talked about in the description so people can just click um, and find, uh, find out about everything we said. Excellent. Thank Good. you very much. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. That's it for this episode of Under the Lab Coat. I hope you enjoyed it. Don't hesitate to rate the podcast on the platforms, to share it around and to subscribe. Thank you.